Welcome to the Intentional Guy Podcast, where we are driven to help men become more intentional and purposeful in their daily lives. Your host, Michael Chestnut, will interview amazing guests to get insight and glean wisdom from so we can integrate intentional living and lead happier, healthier, and more fulfilling lives. All right, let's get started with the show. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to Intentional Guy. Thank you for joining us again today on here. You know, one of the biggest things in my life is not to allow the worst moments in my life define who I am today. And I have, I'm thankful that I've been successful in doing that. And I've shared that with you guys in my walk, my walk. But I love having guests on here that can give us their side and their story and how they did it. And today I am here with author Guy Morris. Guy, thank you for being here today with us. And our topic today is transforming personal trauma into complex and likable characters. And you have a unique way of doing taking traumatic events and how you how you've dealt with them to not to allow not to be defined by those worst moments in your life. And I would like to just let's just start off with you talking to us, share with us what you'd like to, because I know as people are listening, there are people who are going to be able to identify with your story and with what you have to say today. Well, first off, Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And uh, and I value the fact that you've given me uh, some of your time and, and time of your listeners. Um, yeah, I, I after, after a 36-year Fortune 100, highly stressful, long hours career, I retired a few years ago. And, and on my heart at the time, and, and it's been sort of a, a pull, was to start writing. And, and that's my third act career. It not only keeps me super busy, but it keeps me engaged on a lot of levels with things in the world and research and myself and feelings. And you mentioned writing like, you know, characters that are authentic, characters that um, I could relate to at least. And now I write thrillers. And, and the reason I write thrillers is because it's a great format for me to deal with realistic issues and dangers and, and things going on in the world that I do a obscene amounts of research on to to make realistic and we can talk about those maybe some other time that, that dealing with artificial intelligence and the greed of corporate america uh corruption in in uh, politics um uh, technologies and how they're getting away from our ability to manage them especially with artificial intelligence but one of the things that I kind of centered on, or I found myself gravitating to um, as I started creating the characters in the story, were to pull from my own life. And mm -hmm. uh, not only just from people that I knew, but from my own experiences. And now, a lot of times in, in thrillers, they have your typical Navy SEAL, he's CIA, he's FBI, he's um, highly, in, uh, you know, super integrity, uh, knows how to kill you seven ways for the red, white, and blue flag before breakfast, sir. And, and I, I, I've always had it. Those are always ad admirable, admirable characters, but I wanted somebody that for me felt more real. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, the main character of my espionage series, for example, is uh, came from um, a life of childhood trauma. His parents, it was he was a subject of a murder-suicide when he was five that he witnessed but can't remember. 
Uh, he was in foster care for a number of years in and out. Um, uh, he, in order to get into college, he had to hack into the university and cheat. Um, and he's now living um, under the name of a friend who died in an explosion that was meant for him after he had hacked a Bilderberg Illuminati server. And so I, it, I had to go back to my, I, I, by the time I, I left home, um, I was, a, my journey as an adult, I tell people, started as a 13-year-old runaway on the streets of LA, working with migrant workers to eat. Um, terrifying time to be that young and, and that vulnerable on tough streets. I survived, uh, not without scars, but I survived. And um, when I, a few years later, through an absolute set of miracles, I can only say, um, I, was, I was, had the opportunity to go back to college. And in doing so, I was able to get my transcripts and realize that I had, before I dropped out of school and got a GED at the 10th grade, I had already gone to 16 schools, all but three of them I couldn't even remember. Mm -hmm. And I, somehow that kind of internal drive to, to rewrite my story, to change, uh, the, there was a great line in the film um, called A Knight's Tale. Very, very funny, funny film, um, was very popular for a while. Uh, it was sort of a spoof on the whole knighting thing with a, right. a lot of sort of modern sense of humor and, and jokes. Um, but there was one line in there and it was a knight who basically was a very, very poor kid. He was actually, he had served as a serf to this knight. The knight passed away and he was broke. And the only way for him to make a living was to basically pretend that he was a knight. And so they made up this background and they made up this pedigree and, and the other servants basically became his serfs. And they, they went to try and win uh, tournaments, you know, jousting and all that kind of stuff so that they could make money so that they could, they could survive. And, but there was one line in there that really, really struck me. He says, I want it to change my stars. Uh, I was told repeatedly as a child that I was worthless, that I was dumb, that I was stupid, that I would never amount to anything, that my best hope ever was to join a trade union, learn a, a, a you know, learn manual, how to do some manual labor and, and just keep my mouth shut and work. It turned out after years of college, years of Fortune 100, I, I had uh, that I actually excelled on, on an intellectual level. And but I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't taken some major risks in my life. Mm -hmm. First, the risk of leaving home, leaving the violence and the the sexualization and the um, uh, just the constant degrading and um, being, you know, on, on just everything that, that that was to try and say that if I was going to fail, let me fail on my own terms. Let me let me learn from that failure to get up and try again without being told that I that was it. That was who I was. And so I, I spent a, a lifetime trying to reinvent myself, trying to uh, I wrote songs for Disney. Uh, I earned a, a Coast Guard charter captain license and, and chartered out a 50 foot cutter that I was living on uh, for 
for to pay for the maintenance. I uh, recorded multiple CDs. I uh, produced an award-winning webisode series that, ironically, the incident that started that series brought the FBI to my home because um, mm. I had discovered a program that had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Labs um, and was... <laughs> I, I guess geek enough or, or foolish enough to try and figure out what how that could happen and what it was designed to do and apparently that caught their attention um i went shark diving without a cage i've traveled uh mayan ruins that brought additional death threats from cartel it was never i but at the same time my social life my personal life fell apart i struggled with addiction with chronic depression, with um, hyper anxiety, with crippling socialization issues where I, I, I was brilliant in the boardroom and a absolute wallflower in any social setting. Mm. And I, I just didn't know how to really talk to people about stuff on a personal level because I, I only knew how about to talk to people about stuff that I was either doing or that I knew. And and so, and it took me a long time to work through those issues. And I couldn't, it wasn't by ignoring them. It was by trying to tell myself that if I didn't, I didn't want my past to define my future. And that in order to do so, I had to find the courage to become the man I wanted to be, uh, which was a man free of those crippling emotional, psychological issues. I needed to face them, face the man I was with a ruthless, rigorous honesty and deal with it. Find the cause when I could. And it that took decades. I, I wasn't until my 50s that I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Hmm. So I was it was always trying to fix the wrong problem. The, the wrong way. And so that even the constant failure of dealing with those issues was a setback, but not a defeat. Mm. And so I wanted to write characters that reflected that. Um, one character in the, one of the books, her mother passed away from cancer when she was uh, 12, 13. Her father was an admiral, always off. He became a joint chief. So he was like the top of the, you know, the best of the best. She hated, she had to, instead of dealing with her grief, she basically wanted to emulate him and did so by covering up her own issues, which created a real animosity between them later on. And that was to really kind of reflect some of the issues I've had with my own children and my own daughter. Um, one of the characters is an autistic genius, um, super intelligent with regard to cryptology and quantum computing and, and high level technology, but he's socially inept. Um, he uh, shaved head, pierced everything, um, uh, anti-world, um, uh, hyper paranoid, um, just always seeing past the facade of what the world says it is to understanding the true motives and nature of what the world is and, and but not being able to express himself in any sort of socially acceptable way. And so he spends most of his time basically in a dark data room because for him, that's his only safe place. Hmm. 
Um, um, my main character, um, as I mentioned, suffered from trauma as a child. He, um, he was the result. Uh, his background included a murder-suicide uh, when he was five that he can't remember. And then he was in and out of foster cares until he could hack his way into the you know, UCLA. Uh, but now he's been living on the run for two decades because his he is living under the false identity of a friend who died in an explosion that was meant for him. Hmm. And so that reflected some of the violence that I experienced in, in my childhood, and and um, and and the feeling like somehow I got into college by cheating or something. I, it it wasn't because I had really studied hard at school and gotten top SAT scores. I never even took an SAT test, but yet I graduated in college on the dean's list, and and I was accepted into Harvard, and I got a scholarship to go to grad school. Um, because of the work I was doing. And part of, part of all that drive was that constant, for years I said, I live my life with demons at my heels, spurring me on, because if I slow down, if I, if I give up, I will be consumed. Mm. And um, I didn't realize that was part of my PTSD. I don't feel that anymore. But for that was a lot of what, drove me to say I need in order for me to become something new I have to I have to rewrite my story by not letting the boundaries that other people set for me yeah. to be my boundaries mm, not good. not boundaries on a personal level um, I, I had enough issues breaking those but 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 boundaries in terms of who I could be and, yes. and what I was meant to be and um, and so I I never thought about it much. I never considered myself that great of an individual, although I've done some amazing things that most people would only dream of. And um, uh, billion dollar mergers and acquisitions and, and, and being on teams that manage those, uh, restructuring major corporations, uh, working with artificial intelligence and before it was even called artificial intelligence, uh, flying corporate jets and staying at the night best hotels and eating at the best restaurants and, and um, sitting in the boardroom as an advisor. I mean, these are things that I never could have even imagined as a child. Right. And yet I was living that life and all the time feeling unworthy of it. And so I wanted to reflect characters that had that kind of authenticity. <laughs> that, yeah, they were doing heroic things. They struggled through, the, not only struggled through the circumstances that they were in, but struggled through their emotional turmoil they were going through while they were doing those things, but still determined to do the right thing. Yeah. And whether they will ever accept it about themselves or not in the books, they become heroes. Mm. And um, that reluctant hero, that humbled hero, that, that person who felt that somehow morally, ethically, they, they couldn't look at their past and not do the right thing without them feeling like they had just been pulled back in their life right. as opposed right. to moving forward. And, and so I, I think uh, my, my books have gotten a number of awards. I've been compared to Dan Brown, Robert Budlam. Even one guy said if Dan Brown and Tom Clancy were to write a book together, that would look like one of my books. They're all based on 
really deep research into um, technology, history, politics, religion, prophecy, um, dealing with the last with the, the lost ark, dealing with um, the the end time prophecies, uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of layers and, and richness to the books. But when I talk to people about the books, they won't say, "Oh, I really love that theme" or "I really love that plot," which they they do. They'll say that, but they'll always start by saying, "Wow, man, I love your characters. I just feel like they're so fun. They're, they're they 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 have they're intelligent, but they have wit, and they're, they 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 kind of." can be compatible. They laugh at each other, you know, in, in a, in a accepting kind of way. And, um, he says, I, I just, they're just so colorful and char and, and charismatic for me. And, and I love your characters. And I, that was an interesting thing for me to hear because I wasn't sure if that sense of not perfect character was going to resonate because there's so many books where the main character is, you know, the Jack Ryan, you know, superhero, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, yeah. the James Bond shoots a, you know, a bazillion people shoot at him and he never gets hit, you know, right. um, you know, it, I, I never, I, I wasn't sure that I could write that kind of character. And, and my main character in particular hates violence. And that had to do with some traumatic, violent activity, you know, things that happened in my childhood. Hates guns. He won't refuses to use them, even if he's in danger. He'd rather out talk, outsmart, outwit, use a technology, use a gadget, a taser, maybe you know, a, a, a poison dart to knock you out for twenty minutes, maybe. But he he just won't go lethal, and 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 that's a that's a red line for him that triggers back that trauma of a murder suicide. Hmm. And he just can't cross that line. And and so sometimes it takes others to actually get him out of trouble when he gets in, into really deep trouble. And and he can't take that for granted either because now he feels like he owes that person his life. And so I, there's rather than me writing a book to say, hey, I've had a my, my childhood is really messed up, but I, I somehow got through it through a lot of stumbles and, and mistakes. I wanted to write a book that created characters that I hoped could inspire others by just illustrating them going through difficult situations and, and not letting it make them bitter, angry, or hateful. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as you write these characters out, how, how much of these characters do you identify with or not identify with? Are they someone that you wish you were or, you know, how? Well, I, 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 certainly, I mean, there are aspects of my characters that I wish I could be more like. Um, but as I said, I think the characters are a blend of my, my, myself, my own experiences and people I've met. Um, uh, one of my books has some characters in, in uh, Hyderabad, India. And most of those characters or several of those characters are based on... Uh, when I was at Microsoft, I, I had a team of about 35 people in India. And so I used to go to India um, a few times. Uh, I've been, been there a few times and, and, and I, I loved it. I, I loved every, you know, but it was a very heart wrenching experience because you'd have these incredible palaces and right next to the palace was a empty field full of basically tarp homes and, and ultra poor. And um, but so some of the characters are based on people I've met, 
and I've kind of fictionalized them and, and um, uh, to an extent. One of the characters in my book, in, the, in my a historical thriller called The Curse of Cortez, came from a, is a cartel thug uh, who was actually Israeli. Uh, he was uh, a criminal in Israel, uh, fled Israel, was wanted by Interpol uh, for some crimes he did in Europe, wanted by the FBI for some crimes he did in the U.S., and he was now working for the Zetas cartel in Cancun. And I was in Cancun. I had a condo at the time, and I was doing dive trips and exploration to do research for, you know, because I was just doing research, but it turned into a book. Took me a decade to turn that research into a book. It was amazing things I was finding. He basically conned his way into my condo, and when I confronted him, he threatened to kill me. Hmm. Said, so, you know, so that for most people that would trigger fear. Right. For me, it was an instant trigger of rage and determination. No, I've had death threats before. I've had guns put to my head before. I've had guns shot at me before. I'm not going to take this anymore. And I had to, he was tall, I'm short. I had to step up on two steps and my wife was right there. And she's freaking out. And she sees me basically transitioning from my normal sweet self to this oh, no, you didn't kind of attitude. And I got in his face and I told him he didn't have the cojones to mess with this little white guy and that he was going to go down. He had two days, the end of the weekend, to get out of my condo or hell, all hell was going to rain loose on, on, on his life. And he took a step back and wasn't used to having, you know, little gringos basically confront him that way. But for the next three months, I was obsessed. Uh, I found out everything about him. I made sure I took, cut off every ch chance of escape he would have. I looked into ways of getting rid of him, even going to the cartel themselves. And they offered for 25K to kill him and take him to the jungle where no one would find him. And I was like, I just want him out of my condo. I don't need him dead. Uh, shaming him is enough for me. Um, <laughs> but I ultimately cost him everything he had, everything he had and got him in jail for several months um and he basically was with the cartel he was the cartel was so embarrassed about him but at that point they wouldn't deal with him um but he continued to make threats my, we had to sell our condo because my wife didn't feel comfortable down there anymore but i turned him into a character and, and for me that was like okay I, well i shamed him once in real life but if i put him as a character i can get my twofer um, <laughs> So, you know, some of the characters are based on, uh, a lot of them are based on real people, not always myself. Um, there's a character in one of the stories um, that's loosely based on my, my wife, um, the, uh, a, a, a somewhat bossy Irish woman with uh, uh, that uh, is also super sweet at the same time and, and kind of leads the, the, main, the main character who's sort of this you know, kind of crusty around the edges diver. And that comes from my diving experiences and, and experiences as a charter captain and, and a ship captain. Um, but um, so there's a, some humorous interactions be between the, the two characters. So they're not always about me, but oftentimes all the main characters have some level of trauma. It's either family, it's uh, family history, it's violence. It might be sexual. Uh, 
might be abandonment. Um, it might be dealing with being super intelligent, but people just not understanding you and making you sort of a, um, um, a social prior, you know? Um, and so these are all things I've somehow had to deal with dealing with. Um, now I, I haven't had many of the characters dealing with uh, addictions yet. Uh, but that will, that issue will come up at some point. Um, but I wanted to be able to speak. They say, speak, write what you know. Hmm. And I, I, I couldn't write a character that was perfect because I didn't know what that is. I didn't know that character from the inside out. Gotcha. And um, so I, I write characters that male, male or female, it doesn't matter. Um, all the main characters, the important characters in the story are all somehow traumatized and flawed and somehow working through their conscience and their integrity and their desire to make themselves or the world better to do the right thing, even though sometimes it costs them. Yeah. And those are the things I can relate to. So what would you think is more therapeutic for you in your writings? Is it, is it creating these characters that you think are more therapeutic for you or is it the stories? that you're telling both um ironically and as i said I, the characters are really sort of the icing on the cake um, i write fictional characters based on real life experiences and fictional plots but all of that is deeply rooted in real events so um i, I know that you're a christian so I'll, I'll use this one story as an example my latest book called the last ark uh in the the book in the premise a a a program that um, an artificial intelligence has decoded end time prophecy. And none of the characters really quite understand what that means because one of them is a, for various reasons. But the premise of the last arc came when I discovered um, that the Ark of the Covenant that has been in Ethiopia for 900 years, I don't know if you know about this, but um, the, the, there was a, Solomon sent an, an Ark of the Covenant with his son Menenlech and 500 priests, and they set up a temple on Elephant Island in, in, on the Nile River in Egypt. And it was there, that temple was there, they used the Ark in, in worship and in sacrifice until the second century, when the Romans basically um, chased them away, demolished the temple. They ended up in uh, northern Ethiopia um, in a city called Aksum. And for uh, several hundred years after that, the, the Ark was in synagogues. Um, and then when the Templars came, Christians came around the um, 9th, 10th century, um, the Ark moved into stone-cut churches and, and before it ended up in the final church where it's been for like six, seven, eight hundred years uh, called the St. Mary's of Zion Church. And there's a, a guardian there that sets off by a chapel all by itself. There's a guardian who spends his entire life basically watching after the Ark uh, and never leaves that chapel which I think is, was an interesting kind of self-imposed um, sacrifice for someone to make for something that might be fake. Well, that story has been um, Graham Hancock and, and other journalists have basically tried to follow up with the story. They've tried to have conversations with the Guardian. Um, no one's able to see the arc. And so a lot of people said it was fake news. But in January 21, and this is true, an Ethiopian militia uh, basically stormed the city of Axum. 
massacred 750 men, women, and children who were there to protect the Ark, including the Guardian, stole the Ark and sold it on the black market. Hmm. So now, as we're entering into end times, as the uh, Sanhedrin in Jerusalem now have five potential uh, red heifers to start sacrifice, um, there's talk of um, taking over space on the Temple Mount to build a temple um, in spite of all the conflicts that would raise. Um, there's changes in the WAF organization or QAF organization that manages the Temple Mount, uh, where the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia is pushing to basically get a leadership role on that. And he's been very vocal that he would be open to having a Jewish temple on the Ark alongside the um, Dome of the Rock, not to replace it. Um, and most people think that the underneath the Dome of the Rock is where the true temple was. But in my research, that's impossible. Uh, for a number of reasons. The temple was built over a threshing floor. There is um, a threshing floor remaining on the Temple Mount, but it's about 75 yards to the northwest. And the Muslims knew it was holy, and they built a little cupola over it called the Dome of the Spirit. Hmm. That Dome of the Spirit lines up directly with the Golden Gate, which is what used to be the Shoshan Gate, which is what the scripture says uh, was the location of the temple. Where they have the Dome of the Rock used to be the altar. And we know this because underneath the Dome of the Rock, there's that big stone in the middle. Most people don't realize that there is a hole cut in the top of that stone. That hole goes down to a natural cave underneath the Dome of the Rock, underneath that stone. That's called the Well of Souls. And the Well of Souls has an additional tunnel, three-foot tunnel, dug into the bottom of that that goes to the Kidron Valley. That's where they used to drain and clean the altar. And so I bring in all of these. Um, now, there's there's a second arc that comes into the story. Um, in the 1960s, a copper scroll was found in a cave in Qumran, but not with all the other scrolls. Most of the other scrolls in, that were part of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in Qumran were hidden in big, giant plaster um, um, or clay um, ceramic jars, right? Big, giant, right. three-foot-high jars. But this one was actually hidden behind a fake mud wall to actually remain hidden. And it's obvious that even the Essenes at the time didn't know it was there. When they unraveled this scroll um, that made of copper, it was very brittle and very old. They found a very early, a Babylonian era um, um, proto-Hebrew that was written by five different handwritings. And they believe one of them was the scribe Barak, who was Jeremiah's scribe. And it describes 64 locations, very, very specific guidance, Six, 18 steps from this location to that location, down a stairway, turn, you know, go left, you'll find a wall, a wall with a slant on it, and, and, and it's 12 feet down. Well, the 64 very specific locations where they had hidden billions of dollars, tens of tons of temple treasures, gold, silver vessels, uh, and other things. Now, for 50 years, people have been looking all over Jerusalem trying to find these um, these these clues and oh, everybody failing, making the excuse that, well, Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt too many times. We'll never find this stuff. But about six, seven years ago, a guy named came along named Jim Barfield, an American, uh, ironically, and uh, an investigator out of Oklahoma. And he actually was studying maps and charts of Qumran and realized that all of those locations lined up to the ancient ruins of Qumran itself. So he went to Israel, he did measurements, he did surveys, he basically found every location, you know, next to the mitva uh, over here, but there's a large 
um, garden area and he finds that. Uh, he finds every single location. He goes to the Sanhedrin, the Israeli Sanhedrin. Of course, they laugh him out because he's a Goya. He doesn't know anything. But they convince him. They convince the San, He convinces the Sanhedrin that he's on to something. The Sanhedrin then goes to the Israeli Archaeology and Antiquities Group, and they convince them that they're on to something. They go out and they do a metal a survey first and then a metal scan in Qumran and find non-ferrous metals under every single location. But they only dig down for two feet, even though the scroll said nine, 12 feet depth. Um, they didn't say feet, but it was roughly that, that depth. And then they cover it up and said, there's nothing here because rumors were already starting to fly around Jerusalem. The problem is, is that Qumran is located on the Palestinian West Bank. Israel cannot dig there or else anything that they would find would go into a military tribunal warehouse and they would never see it again. So that was the time they basically tried to kill the rumor about the, um, oh, in the 64th location, this is important. The 64th location contains a second copper scroll. And on that copper scroll, it describes where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. So the last arc deals with um, political turmoil in America, political turmoil in the Middle East and in Ukraine, um, uh, artificial intelligence issues and data, uh, AI data poisoning um, that's being done by Russia. While our hero is being led by this computer, clues left by this computer to discover these, these facts. And as these two arcs basically come to light as part of a political theater peace deal uh, and a, a tabernacle on the temple. Um, he's got to figure out how to way to basically keep these things from being political, um, political toys, right? Wow. Used only for political purposes. And so he's, and in the process, he's got to save the life of the woman who turned him into a fugitive. He's got to save her life twice. Hmm. And so, um, He's not only trying to save his own fanny, but he's he he knows that he can't just he can't just let this woman be um, die for for reason that she doesn't deserve. And so um, there's a lot going on personally, but there's also but I also like to have really interesting, intricate, well researched, um, layered plots from which these characters can then. face their own demons and, and somehow come out on top. Wow. Well, let me ask you guy, where, where would we find your, so we probably find your books on Amazon and things. Absolutely. Uh, a good, you can go search for me on Amazon. My, my books will come up. You can also go to my website, guymorrisbooks.com. And on the website, you'll not only find, a page for each book, a link to where the buy pages are, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and a half a dozen, about 10 other places. But you'll find uh, fact versus fiction pages. Um, you'll get uh, review highlights and links uh, to the, all the amazing great reviews I've gotten. You'll see some videos. You'll see image libraries of actual, the actual locations, places, and things that uh, were, uh, uh, were important in the story. Um, and so it's a real, it's a rich experience just in and of itself, uh, if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Um, and the artificial intelligence that I deal with in, in because I, I've done a lot of, uh, I used to be involved in the business. I was involved in um, companies like Microsoft who were um, um, 
leaders in this field. Uh, some of my old colleagues are artificial intelligence um, um, developers. Um, but I'm, I was looking for some of the, I'm, I was more interested in not just the potential, but what are the risks? What are the real risks? Right. Not sci-fi, AI takes over the world, um, you know, and kind of, you know, iRobot, Will Smith kind of movie. But um, what are the, some of the things that we could experience in, our, in, our, in the next 10 years, in the next seven years? What are some of the things that AI advances that AI will be making in that time frame? And, and how do those things pose a major danger to us in terms of national security, uh, cultural issues, misinformation, banking, um, uh, et cetera? And much of that is based on the, the inspiration for that theme was based on a, <laughs> a funny but true story. Um, years ago, I was reading a science article because I was always had to do that that kind of stuff for my, my research and staying up at work. And it was a very, very short article. It was Associated Press. And the first paragraph said simply that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. And the second paragraph was, if I knew anything about this, um, to contact this FBI agent or this professor at Sandia. I, I just, I my world just stopped for a few moments. I said, whoa, whoa. It, it, I said, well, somebody at Associated Press just made a huge boo-boo. It was supposed to say program was stolen or program was lost or program malfunctioned. These bozos said a program had escaped. And then right. I thought, or some bozo at the Sandia Labs decided to talk to a press and, and this wasn't supposed to come out. And, and so I thought, wow, that's amazing. And so I thought, well, escape implies intent. It implies some level of intelligence. It implies the ability for the program to move itself and then to go back and erase the log trail so that the, this, uh, they couldn't find it. Now, the Sandia Labs are an NSA spy lab. They do signals, they do cryptology, they created the Suxnet virus that brought down the Iranian centrifuges. This is a super highly advanced technical laboratory of the NSA. So in my head, I'm thinking a spy program has escaped the NSA and they can't find it. I said, how cool is that? So I actually spent several months, I cut that article out, I taped it on my monitor, I looked at it every single day and whenever I had the chance, I would go back and do research and playing around with the idea of saying, okay, exactly how is this architect designed so that it could have that stealth capability? And then once I figured that out, I thought, okay, so that's pretty cool. That's really incredible. I said, so what did the NSA design this thing to do that it would need that stealth capability? And so was, the question in my head was something along the lines of, okay, if I were James Bond Q, what would I want my perfect spy program to look like? And so I, I developed a couple, I went through my data center, my office, and, and I basically developed a number, about half a dozen different major attributes. And at the time I had a friend who was a film producer and an uh, indie producer. And, and I went to him, we talked about this, whether we should do a pilot or a screenplay. And we ultimately decided to do it as a webisode series because it was an internet based program. And all of the activity that would, I kind of created, um, you know, an underground group that found this program or it found them. And I gave it a personality and a name named Sylvia, which stands for Sistificated Language Person Virtual Intelligence Algorithm. Uh, and we started producing the series, a huge hit, 
I even had I had fans all over the world from China, Israel, Europe, um, all over the states, and, and even a the director of flight operations at the Houston Space Center, whose whose alias it clued me in because his alias he didn't tell me his name for the first several weeks, but he would write me almost weekly, and but his alias was Orbit at NASA.gov. <laughs> that, that was a clue. So we got optioned by one of the studios. It was a huge hit. Two weeks before the studio was supposed to exercise the option, two FBI agents show up at my door. They were rather perturbed that I had figured out something. They wanted to know how I knew about what was supposed to be a top secret program. Now, my wife is freaking out. If you can imagine. She said, why are there two FBI agents sitting in my dining room? And what did you do, Morris? You know, <laughs> so that conversation lasted actually a few weeks uh, before she finally believed me. I said, I just geeked out. What can I say? Um, but that that character, that program and the characters created in that webisode series became the main characters within my espionage series, Swarm in the Last Arm. And so sometimes the all... So yes, I love to have these really fun characters, but I like to put the characters in situations that really tie back to something real, um, mm -hmm. something factual, something that I could point to and do research on and sprinkle all of that reality uh, within uh, within the plot um, so that uh, it has the, uh, these, the, the authentic sense of plausibility yeah. that uh, with the idea, sorry for dabbling my eyes, I'm having some allergies today. Um, that sense of this could really happen and, um, or gee, did that really happen? And that's, I, I, I so I have joy in, in both. I, I find a real joy in finding those nuggets of really cool reality, filtering that, infusing my fiction with that reality, and then building characters that I think reflect, as I said, a, a sense of, real people going through tough times and and s somehow surviving it and and growing from it and um, you, yeah. i am i so i was never much of a reader until the last couple years mm -hmm. and i i now i enjoy it so i haven't i am a sci-fi thriller buff so now you've you've intrigued me <laughs> completely you know, so I'm looking forward to getting to your website, viewing them, seeing and, and going through this. And maybe in an, um, well, let me get through some of this. And then I would love to have you back and discuss some of this again. Would be my honor. Um, but, Guy, I want to thank you for being on here today. We're running out of time. A lot of information, a lot of, I just will make sure that we put, all these links in your in the description here so that you guys listening can go into it. I, I thank you for sharing some things that were probably a little hard to share as well and being authentic with it. But I love the process that you've used in your life here and how uh, you've been able to take this and, and, and do this with it. So I'm very intrigued, looking forward to it. And, and again, Guy, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you, Michael. It's been my pleasure. All right. Until next time, everyone, keep being intentional. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Intentional Guy Podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed the show and got some real value out of it. Tell others what you learned and share the podcast if you think they would benefit from it too. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review, and consider checking out our website, intentionalguy.org, to learn more about us and get in touch. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.